Good evening and welcome to our service. We're glad that you can join us. Uh, before we start, just let me remind you again that after uh, the service this evening, we're going to have our coffee time. That's at 10 past 7. Uh, if you'd like to join us, you're very welcome. If you need a link that, and you haven't received it, then do let me know and I'll be happy to send it to you. Well, this evening we're going to be looking at a section of the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is going to speak about the future. Uh, he's going to speak about uh, worldwide events and how uh, he knows not just what is coming, but Jesus is in control of all of those things. But the Bible also teaches us, as well as being in control and knowing all about the big events of the world, he also has each one of us in his hands, and he knows all about us and is in control also of our lives. And our first song speaks into that truth. It speaks of how all our ways are known to God. <coughs>
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the future is in your control. We live in days of much uncertainty. This is true both in terms of worldwide events and for many of us in terms of our individual circumstances. But we want to say this morning that we trust in you because we know that you are our sovereign king over everything. And we know that all of our ways are known to you. So help us, Lord, to keep looking to you, to keep trusting you, and to keep faithfully following you throughout all our days in whatever our circumstances may be. We do think of those who are suffering with sickness, with parents who are struggling with homeschooling, for those who are concerned about their employment, and for those who are grieving. We know that these situations are all throughout our world, they're all throughout our nation and our community, and all of these situations are within our church. Your people are not immune from any of these things. And so we pray for your people in our fellowship. Would you give them peace in these situations with the truth that you know them, you love them, you care for them, you provide for them, that you are their God and Savior. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in Matthew chapter 24, which we'll look at a little bit later, um, that chapter speaks of the fall of Jerusalem, an event that would prove to be cataclysmic for the Jewish people. And it was a judgment of their rejection of the Messiah. And this isn't something that is unfamiliar, though, in their history. In the Old Testament, when they rejected God, Jerusalem was judged then as well. And one place where we read about that is in the prophet Ezekiel. And we're going to have our Bible reading this evening from Ezekiel chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, uh, if you would turn to Ezekiel 11 and you can follow along uh, there as Kevin reads that to us. Ezekiel 11. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the gate of the house of the Lord that faces east. There, at the entrance of the gate, were twenty-five men. And I saw among them Jazaniah, son of Azor, and Pelatiah, son of Benaiah, leaders of the people. The Lord said to me, Son of man, these are the men who are plotting evil and giving wicked advice to the city. They say, Haven't our houses been recently rebuilt? This city is a pot and we are the meat in it. Therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, son of man. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon me, and he told me to say, This is what the Lord says. That is what you are saying, you leaders in Israel. But I know what is going through your mind. You have killed many people in this city, and filled its streets with the dead. Therefore this is what the Sovereign Lord says. The bodies you have thrown there are the meat, and this city is the pot, but I will drive you out of it. You fear the sword, and the sword is what I will bring against you, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will drive you out of the city and deliver you into the hands of foreigners and inflict punishment on you. You will fall by the sword, and I will execute judgment on you, 
at the borders of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be the meat in it. I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel, and you will know that I am the Lord. For you have not followed my decrees or kept my laws, but have conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Now, as I was prophesying, Pelatiah, son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell face down and cried out in a loud voice, Alas, sovereign Lord, will you completely destroy the remnant of Israel? The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, the people of Jerusalem have said of your fellow exiles and all the other Israelites, they are far away from the Lord. This land was given to us as our possession. Therefore, say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore, say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. But as for those hearts, those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, declares the Sovereign Lord. Then the cherubim, with the wheels beside them, spread their wings, and the glory of the Lord of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city, and stopped above the mountain east of it. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the exiles in Babylonia in the vision given by the Spirit of God. Then the vision I had seen went up from me, and as I told the exiles everything the Lord had shown me. ...of Jerusalem being judged, and we're going to read about that again uh, when we come to Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus describes uh, that coming judgment as days of distress. And we're also going to see as we look through that chapter in Matthew how those kind of days of distress are common to all of us uh, throughout history. But throughout those days of distress, we can have confidence that God is our God and he will protect us and keep us. And our next song reminds us that although we face days of distress, uh, our confidence is in the Lord.
you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Uh, we're going to be in that chapter this evening. Matthew chapter 24. Well, we live in an age that is awash with conspiracy theories, don't we? A conspiracy theory is a belief that some secret or covert person or organization is responsible for events that we can't explain or uh, events that we do not like. Now, of course, throughout history, there have been examples of cover-ups, but the kind of conspiracy theories I mean are those that really have no foundation in truth and are just mere speculation. And this finds its form in the Christian world with the various theories around the return of Jesus Christ and when that will happen. We see charts and predictions, secret keys to unlocking Bible prophecy, and explanations about why this current event proves that the return will happen now rather than uh, any other time in the future or why it hasn't happened any other time in the past. Now, of course, there will be one final event before Jesus returns, uh, but the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what that will be. The problem many Christians have, just like the conspiracy theorists, is that God chooses not to reveal every detail to us of what will happen before Jesus returns. As we read in Deuteronomy chapter 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. What God does reveal to us not just about the future, but about everything, is what we need to know about him and what it means to live for him. That might not always be what we want to know. We we perhaps want to know more, but all that we need to know has been revealed to us by God in his word. And some of what we need to know does involve knowledge about the future. And it is about the future that Jesus turns to in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. In these chapters, just before he goes to the cross, Jesus tells his disciples, and therefore us, what you need to know about the future. Now, before delving into this chapter in detail, I think it's really important that we set the context of what Jesus is saying here. And the context is verses 1 to 3. So before we read anything else in Matthew 24, let me read to you verses 1 to 3. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see these things, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Jesus has just been judging the Pharisees and teachers of the law in the temple. We've seen him there since really chapter 21. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law have just rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus, we saw last week, condemned them. They're going to be judged. 
And look back at Matthew chapter 23 and verse 38. Jesus says there, Look, your house is left to you desolate. And if you remember, desolate means empty or deserted. The religious leaders believed that the temple showed that God is with them. And there is great symbolism in verse 20, uh, chapter one of, uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 24, when Jesus walks away from the temple and goes to the Mount of Olives. And there is a parallel there to what we read earlier in Ezekiel chapter 11. In Ezekiel 11, Jerusalem is going to be judged for their rejection of God. However, in Ezekiel, God promised that the people would return to their land which doesn't happen in this chapter, we'll see in Matthew. But after Ezekiel receives his vision, in verse 23 of Ezekiel 11, we read this. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. That's Ezekiel 11, verse 23. So there, God left the temple and went to the mountain east of it, which is the Mount of Olives. And Ezekiel was to go there to tell the people of the judgment that he had just been told about that was coming on Jerusalem. And so here, history is repeating itself. Jesus is the God who leaves the temple, goes to the Mount of Olives, and from there is going to pronounce judgment on Jerusalem. But this time, there will be no second chance. The temple would be destroyed. But that promise from Ezekiel 11 of a new heart that's made of flesh is found when we trust in Jesus, who is the new, if you like, dwelling place of God, the new temple. Now, as Jesus leaves the temple here, his disciples call his attention to its architecture. Mark's account in Mark chapter 13 tells us that they point out how amazing this building is and how beautiful it is. They, 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 they admire this building. They love it. And they love the temple because it was essential to their religious way of life. And Jesus draws their attention in verse 2 to something else about the temple, that it's going to be destroyed. Not one stone, he says, is going to be left on top of another. In other words, this is going to be a complete demolition job. And that's going to be shocking for the disciples for, for two reasons. Uh, first of all, the, the stones on the temple were not like the bricks that are in the building that I'm in now. They were huge stones, massive things. And so it would be quite something for Jesus to say that all of these stones are going to be totally uh, uh, destroyed and one not one left on top of the other. It's because of the, the scale of this, this temple complex, it was quite something to imagine that it was all going to be destroyed. But more significantly than that was the fact that the temple was the center of the Jewish religious life. It would have been hard, nigh on impossible to imagine life without the temple. The building uh, represented uh, the presence of God with the people. They could not conceive of life without this. 
And Jesus was going to show them that the time of the temple in Jerusalem, this physical building, was coming to an end. Jesus is now the dwelling place of God. Now following God is all about following him. But at the time Jesus was saying this, for these disciples, these Jewish men who, who had had their whole life based around the temple, it was something beyond their comprehension. And so on the half-hour walk from the temple to the Mount of Olives, the disciples were no doubt thinking and discussing among themselves what on earth Jesus was talking about and, and how this was going to happen. And as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and, and they asked him to tell us about the future. And in the mind of the disciples, the destruction of the temple meant the end of time. Those two things to them must be the same thing. They couldn't conceive of a time of, being, of there being no temple. And so they asked Jesus two questions that in their minds are linked together. Look at verse 3, at the end of verse 3. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So question one is about timing. When will the temple be destroyed? And then question two is about signs. What will be the sign that you are coming at the end of the age? And the end of the age here means the final judgment, the, the end of all things. That's what end of the age means. To the disciples, there isn't a delay between the destruction of the temple and the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is to them one and the same thing. And those two questions are the same as many are asking today, aren't they? When will the end come? What will the sign be that it is near? And there have been and are many theories about this. But what Jesus does here is he answers their question by showing them what they need to know. Not necessarily what we want to know, but he tells us what we need to know about the future. And Matthew chapter 24 and the parallel accounts in Mark 13 and Luke 21, which are helpful to read alongside actually, are among the most difficult passages to understand in the New Testament. It's difficult because it's hard to know sometimes when Jesus is talking about the end of time, his second coming, and when he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. And Christians disagree on uh, when Jesus is talking about which very often. But the way I understand this is that Jesus basically answers the first question, when will the temple be destroyed, in verses 1 through 35. And then Jesus answers the second question, what will be the signs of the end of the age, in verse 36, and then all the way through chapter 25, as he speaks of that second coming in the form of various parables. And one of the things that Matthew is showing us is that contrary to what the disciples believe, there is a delay between the temple destruction and the second coming. And what we know is that we are in that delay right now. The temple has been destroyed and Jesus has not yet returned. 
The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. It was after a period of horrific suffering as the city of Jerusalem was besieged by the Roman armies. We'll look more in detail at that event next week. But it looked like, at the time, the end of the world. And Jesus speaks about that time in this chapter, prophesying that it would happen. But although Jesus is speaking to his disciples here about a specific event in time, AD 70, we know that the things that happened before the fall of Jerusalem also happen throughout the history of the world since then. And so we can apply the lessons that he teaches his disciples here to our lives today. Furthermore, what happened in Jerusalem was also a foreshadowing, as all the judgments really uh, in the Bible are, unless it's talking about the final judgment, they're all foreshadowings of that final judgment to come. And we'll see this as we go through. Now, there is a lot in this chapter that we could get bogged down with, but the, the big point, if you remember nothing else, is that this is Jesus teaching what we need to know about the future. And in the first 35 verses, really, we're taught three lessons of what we need to know. We need to know what's normal, we need to know what's coming, and we need to know what's true. Know what's normal, know what's coming, and know what's true. And this week, we're going to just look at what's normal. Know what is normal. And that's in really the first 14 verses um, of Matthew chapter 24, really from verse 4 downwards. So let's, having looked at the context, read from verses 4 down to verse 14. So Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate one another. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is God's word. Well, dramatic events always lead to claims that the end is near. And Jesus tells his disciples that, to, that what, what, what to expect before the temple is destroyed so that they are not alarmed by it. What we find in verses 4 to 14, what we've just read, should sound and seem familiar to us experientially. Because these things always happen and have always happened. And so when we see them take place, we ought to react as Jesus tells his disciples to here. 
And we'll see how he tells them to react as we go. We know that these things are not the end and they're normal. And we see that in the kind of language Jesus uses in these verses. So in verse 6, he he talks about um, wars and rumors of wars. And then he says, but the end is still to come. So this is not the end of the world. The end is, is still in the future. And in verse 8, he talks about the beginning of birth pains. In other words, it's not the end yet. These are just the beginning of birth pains. In other words, these things are not the end. These things are what will take place before the end. And we see that these things are all normal things in the history of the world. And they are specific things that do take place before the destruction in Jerusalem. And that's the context that Jesus is speaking to. He's telling the disciples here what will happen before the temple is destroyed in Jerusalem. He's not speaking specifically here in these 14 verses about specific events before the second coming. This is about what will happen in history before Jerusalem falls. And what we see is a a series of different events. In verses 4 to 5, we see false messiahs. They are to be on the lookout or to watch for people claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus is telling them not to be deceived by other people offering another way of salvation. Now, this kind of thing is prevalent in a time of crisis. The main problem, it, problems in Jerusalem began to happen in about AD 66 with a huge Jewish revolt in Israel. And before and after AD 66, when the Romans started besieging the city of Jerusalem, there were many pretenders claiming to be the Messiah, who would save the people of Israel from the Romans. And Jesus says, expect this to happen. It's normal. It happened then, and it happens now. Because it's normal for us too, isn't it? Don't be deceived by false messiahs who claim to give you all that you need in this life. It's easy, uh, in one sense, to think of cult leaders who are false messiahs. But we need to watch out as well for false gospels that sound Christian and philosophies that promise to make us happy and even celebrities and influencers who would draw us away from Jesus. I would add that we need to be aware of social media because it's interesting, isn't it, that on Twitter and Instagram we are asked to follow people. Now, Tim mentioned last week about being careful who you're influenced by or what you're influenced by. False messiahs are normal. Secondly, war and conflict is normal. Before Jerusalem fell, there was much uh, war and much rumor of war in the world that they were in. And again, hasn't that always been the case? Even today, we see war and rumors of war. But Jesus says, don't be alarmed by this. These things, however horrible, are what we expect to happen. Jesus says, don't panic about it. Don't be alarmed by it. 
Now, just as an, an, a, maybe a, a, it might be a bit of a silly example, but if, if you get a letter through the post that says you have to go to the dentist for some surgery, the letter doesn't alarm you. You don't start to, 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 to wonder why on earth you might be getting this letter. Even though you understand it must happen and it's going to be painful, the response to the letter isn't one of, of total shock that it's coming or any other kind of medical appointment really. Wars and rumors of war are not things to panic over. They're not telling us that the end of the world is about to happen straight away. This is all going to happen throughout history. And it happened before Jerusalem fell, but at the end of verse 6, Jesus says, the end is still to come. So, so don't look at conflict in the Middle East or elsewhere and pinpoint that as the, the one final war that's going to be the last thing to happen before Jesus returns. All that kind of stuff is normal. Now, of course, there, there will be one final war before Jesus returns. That makes sense. But remember, the context here is about war and rumors of war before Jerusalem fell. It was, it, it was something not to be alarmed about. It was normal. Thirdly, there was going to be famine and earthquakes. In Acts chapter 11, we read of a famine during the reign of Claudius. And there were earthquakes in various places, even at this time. Uh, in AD 61, there was a major earthquake in Phrygia, in, in uh, modern-day Turkey. In AD 62, there was a major earthquake recorded in Pompeii. There were earthquakes in various places. And again, just like it was to happen before Jerusalem fell, we can apply that today by saying famines and earthquakes and other natural disasters are all over the world. They are normal throughout history. In verse 8, Jesus tells us that these things are the beginning of birth pains. And the illustration he uses of a woman in labor is helpful here in interpreting these things as normal, not the end. Now, of course, not every woman's experience of labor is going to be the same, but generally, there are milder contractions at the beginning which get worse until the very end when the baby is being pushed out. And when a woman has her first child especially, she may be wondering the whole time, is this normal? It's not something that she would have experienced before. And Jesus is saying that the end will come, Jerusalem will be destroyed, and that will be painful. We're going to see how painful that is uh, from verse 15 onwards next week. But the false messiahs, the wars, and the natural disasters are normal. They're painful, like even the mild contractions in labor are painful, but they are normal and they are not as bad as the end. Now again, the end in the disciples' mind was the destruction of the temple. But again, that foreshadows the greater judgment to come, which is at the end of time. And all of the, the, the pains in this life are but a shadow of greater judgment to come when we do not trust in Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. 
So verses 4 to 8 are, if you like, general pains. General pains that happen all over the world, um, all of the time, and specifically did happen before AD 70. But from verses 9 to 14, Jesus speaks of how Christians are specifically going to be impacted. And again, these things are normal for God's people. So verse 9 begins with the word then, which does not mean after those things, but rather while those things are going on. So this is also normal. So we see for God's people, there is the persecution of the church in verse 9. Now, as soon as the church was born, people stood against it, didn't they? We see this in the book of Acts, where Jesus' words in verse 9 are clearly fulfilled. Even though some did come to faith, the disciples were hated everywhere they went. And we know that today that also is normal, isn't it? Throughout history, sadly, every single day, many Christians are murdered because of their faith in Jesus. And again, this will continue. It continued until the fall of Jerusalem. It will continue until Jesus returns. In addition to attacking the people of God, some of those who claim to be the people of God will walk away from him. This is called apostasy. And we see this in verses 10 to 12. Some will walk away because of persecution. That seems to be what verse 10 is speaking about. At the time of persecution, some will betray others and hate them. So it seems to me, to me that that verse is saying that, that those who were professing to be Christians because of this persecution, will turn away from Jesus and persecute those who they were claiming were brothers and sisters. In verse 11, some will walk away because they have been deceived by the false messiahs. Often these messiahs at a time of crisis will offer an easier life than following Jesus. And then in verse 12, we see that the wickedness of the world infiltrates the church and their love grows cold. Verse 12 says that the love of most grows cold. It can also be translated as the love of many will grow cold. And I think that's more the gist of it, many. Many people who profess Christ will not last the course because they will fall into the wickedness of the world around them. And again, this is normal, not just before AD 70, but it's still normal today, isn't it? Difficult times can be a time of purification for the church to see who really are the people of God. And if we are not watching and we are not aware and we're not going deep with God in his word, in prayer, in Christian fellowship, our love can grow cold and we can end up walking away from the faith. And notice how love grows cold. That means it, it, it grows cold over time. Apostasy is not a one-off event. We, most people who walk away from Jesus don't wake up one morning and say, ah, oh, you know what, today I'm just going to give up. No, it happens drip by drip by drip, slowly, slowly, as we engage with Jesus less and less and less as we take less seriously the disciplines of the Christian life, 
as we take less seriously the claims of the Bible, as we're not thinking about these things, our love can grow cold. So make sure that you're engaging with Jesus because times of purification are normal. Well, verses 9 to 12 are normal but sad and quite depressing, actually, aren't they? That list that you can see on the screen is not a good list. But Jesus gives us two encouragements in the last couple of verses that we're going to look at. Two normal events that are good in regards to God's people. First of all, God's people will persevere. Now, there will be some that walk away, but verse 13 reminds us that those who endure to the end will be saved. Those who keep going will have their reward. The end for those who reject Jesus in Jerusalem was terrible, as we'll see next week. But the end for those who reject Jesus today is even more terrible as they are judged for their sin. But following Jesus and keeping going is worth it because we'll be saved from that judgment to come. Jesus has died for our sins and risen from the dead so we can be saved from the judgment to come. Jesus is judged for us. And so we can put our faith in him to save us from our sins. But what Jesus means here is that those who are truly gods, those who are saved from their sins, are not going to be thrown off course by these birth pains, but they stand firm. They keep going. They keep following Jesus. And we can only keep going with the power of the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit-empowered perseverance shows that we are his people. So the first encouragement is that whilst it is normal for some Christians to fall away, and that is sad, and we see that all the time, it is also normal for Christians to persevere. And those that do so find that it is always worth it. So the first encouragement there is that God's people will persevere. The second encouragement, the second um, normal aspect of the Christian life is that God's gospel will progress. The good news about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus will go to the whole world. Now some have, in my opinion, misinterpreted verse 14 by saying this, we can speed up the coming of Jesus by evangelizing the nations. Now, whilst the second coming is a motivation for evangelism, that motivation is that we love the people in the world so much and we love God so much that we want all people to have an opportunity to be saved before it's too late and they face God's judgment. It's the love of Christ that compels us to share the gospel, not using people as a catalyst for the second coming. And if we interpreted the verse in that way, that if you share the gospel with the whole world, Jesus will come back a bit quicker, well then we're never going to believe that he's coming back soon, because there are even today millions of people groups who have not yet heard of Christ. And that goes against the teaching of uh, the, the second coming, which we'll see later in Matthew 24, 
that we, we do not know when it will be. It will be at a time that is unexpected. Remember the context. Jesus was speaking to the disciples about the fall of Jerusalem. And before that fall, in AD 70, the gospel did go forth all over the known world of the time. Of course, they did not reach the whole world as we know it today, but the gospel was going out before then. The commission that Jesus gave was being fulfilled. That worldwide work was beginning. And the end for Jerusalem, Jesus said, would not come until that began to happen and the gospel goes out throughout the whole world. And of course, that continues today, doesn't it? As the gospel goes out throughout the world in missions. Well, we've seen how these events impact us and how they impacted the disciples of Jesus' day. But as we close, uh, I want to draw out some general applications that will help us in regards to what we need to know about the future. With regards to what is normal, here are some uh, lessons we need to take on board. First of all, don't panic. Don't panic. When you see these kinds of things happening, don't panic. Jesus says, don't be alarmed to his disciples. We need to remember that God is in complete control even when the world around us seems to be falling apart. That's so important to remember in the current crisis we're living in. God has not dropped the ball in regards to COVID. These things are normal in the history of the world. So first of all, don't panic. Secondly, don't speculate. Some people are really into trying to work out how the latest events in the world signal the end of the world and the return of Christ. What Jesus tells us here is that none of these events are out of the ordinary. For example, take COVID-19. It is horrible. It is sad that so many people have died. But it does not signal the return of Jesus Christ in any specific way. There has been much worse pandemics in the history of the world since Jesus um, spoke these things. In the 1300s, the Black Death wiped out one-third of the population of Europe. And it did not discriminate between children and adults and, or, or any age. That was a, a horrific time. And there were no doubt many Christians wondering, well, is this the end of the world? Because it looked like it. But of course, it was not the end of the world. It was normal. Now, I'm not saying Jesus is not coming back soon. He, he, we're going to see. It's at a time we don't expect. It could be. But what I'm saying is that we cannot read the newspaper to predict when he is coming. Don't speculate. These things are normal. So there's two things not to do. Don't panic, don't speculate. But instead of panicking and speculating, here's two positive things we can do or need to do in light of what Jesus has said here. And the first one is stand firm consistently. Stand firm consistently. Jesus says in verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. So that means get on with living the Christian life. 
Instead of being sucked into the latest theory on the internet of when Jesus is coming back, read the Bible, pray, love others, fight sin, grow hot for Jesus instead of cold. The focus of our Christian lives should be on focusing on who God is and living as he asks us to live, not on speculation, but standing firm consistently. Live your Christian life. Secondly, share your faith confidently. Share your faith confidently. In verse 14, we are not promised success in seeing people converted. But in next week's passage, in verse 31, we do see that God is gathering a people to himself, which does indicate that there will be some success as we proclaim the gospel. We are called to proclaim our faith with confidence all over the world. Again, rather than panic or speculate, point people to the one who can save them from what they panic about and from the judgment that is definitely coming and we don't need to speculate about. That when Jesus returns, we don't know when that will be. That Jesus is returning as the judge is absolutely certain. And so rather than speculating about the when, point people to the who, so that they may escape the judgment to come. Share your faith confidently. Well, next week we're going to look at what exactly happened to Jerusalem and how that impacts us today. That'll be from verse 15. But for this week, as we've just focused on those verses before, let's have confidence that God knows the future. It's in his hands. We can trust him. There are many um, storms of life which are normal that we've seen in this passage. And the teaching of this passage is to keep going with Jesus through them all. He's the one that will carry us through He is our only hope throughout all times. And our final song uh, speaks of this, that Jesus is the, the one to whom we trust. Our final song is, Will Your Anchor Hold? Fastened to the rock which cannot move.
secure by faith in the Savior's hands, shielded by His grace. On Christ we stand, He is Lord of all. We should never doubt through uncertain times, He is solid my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.